And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. Are we sleepwalking into a global disaster? That's a pretty heavy question, but that's what's being asked after this weekend. We'll have the story coming right up. there, Peter Mansbridge here in Stratford, Ontario. Welcome to a new week. Welcome to Monday. Welcome to The Bridge. And because it's Monday, that means Dr. Janice Stein from the Monk School at the University of Toronto. We're talking, well, we're talking big time foreign affairs. And with the events of the last couple of days, it couldn't be perhaps any bigger than the discussion is today because big questions about the future are now being asked. We'll get to those with Dr. Stein in just a moment, but a little bit of housekeeping first of all. Um, Monday mornings, we give you the question of the week, and I'll do that right now, but I'll also tell you that this week's your turn. I kind of kind of split the time a little bit. We're going to do the question of the week, which I'll unveil in a minute, but we'll also take your comments on on other issues as well, like we used to. You know, there have been a number of you who have written saying, you know, I miss that part. I'd still like to hear some of the feelings that people have on a variety of different issues. So we'll do that. We'll do that this week. We'll test it out. We'll test out the combination of both things. The question of the week has been extremely successful. Um, there are lots of new people writing in, lots of them, and, uh, and way more people writing in overall than there used to be. But we're still missing that other element, the opportunity, the true opportunity of your turn, which is letting you say what you want to say about various issues. Uh, so we'll try and do a combination of both this week and see how that plays out. Um, the question of the week is going to be this one, uh, a little lighter in tone than uh, some of the others, but uh, still important, especially for those who travel by air. The question is, if there's one thing you could do to change the way the airlines operate, what would that one thing be? All right? If there's one thing you could do to change the way the airlines operate, what would it be? So there's your question. Think about it. Send it in to themansbridgepodcast at gmail.com. Themansbridgepodcast at gmail.com. Have it in by Wednesday, 6 p.m., don't forget your name and location, and keep it short. And the same goes for general comments on other things. Same address, same time uh, period, and uh, same kind of conditions on your entry. So looking forward to hearing from you. All right. Let's get to the conversation with uh, Dr. Stein, because it's, um, it's pretty important, and it comes as a result of Things that have happened over the last two, three, four days. I won't say any more than that. Self-explanatory when we get into it. So, Peter, let's get into it. Um, Here she is, Dr. Stein. You know, Janice, for the last few weeks, we've been kind of talking in a very, well, not, not a very pleasant way, about the different possibilities of a, a wider war, B, a kind of pre-war feeling that's out there in a lot of different countries. 
And, you know, let's face it, you know, a World War III situation is what uh, some people are, are worried about. So then into this, you have Donald Trump last, uh, over the weekend, saying uh, in a campaign speech, and we got to remember, you know, with Donald Trump, the advice we always get is, you know, don't take him literally is one thing we, we hear. But the other thing we hear from some of those who worked for him is, you know, when, when he says something, believe it. So what did he say over the weekend? He said that if, for, for, if he was president with countries that weren't uh, poning up to the bar with their uh, 2% on, of GDP on defense spending, NATO countries, that he wouldn't protect them. And in fact, he went a step further. He said he'd invite Russia to attack them. I don't know. I've never heard a statement like this. I've never heard a statement remotely like this uh, from any responsible leader of any NATO country, frankly, Peter. It is is just mind-blowing, is all I can say. And Trump really couldn't have picked a worse time to let loose. First of all, I do think we take him at his word. He's he's had it in for NATO as a so-called ripoff. He sees NATO exclusively as um, a financial issue. And it's all about who's paying their share and who's not. And is the United States doing a disproportionate amount? Which is, of course, exactly a wrong way to look at a collective security organization for the most powerful military in the world, which is the United States. Uh, so I do take him at his word. And that's why I found what he said so shocking. You have to ask yourself, what does Vladimir Putin make of that speech? Um, and Donald Trump's remarks comes on the heels of a Tucker Carlson interview with Vladimir Putin. That also, in many ways, was unprecedented. Two hours uh, by a journalist, former journalist with Fox News, who got privileged access. Um, Putin was clearly sending very strong messages to the West. Uh, we are not going to back down. There is no strategic defeat of Russia in the horizon. You have to make a deal with us. That was a subliminal text of that whole interview. You put these two conversations together. If you're Finland, if you're Sweden, if you're the Baltics, if you're Poland, even though those countries are paying their share, you really have to worry. You know, the danger with Trump at this moment is, uh, you know, he's not even the nominee yet. He's, he's almost certainly going to be the nominee for the Republican Party for uh, the presidential election in November. But he's not the president. He's not running the United States uh, yet, um, if he's ever going to again. Uh, so the the challenge is, like, what do you do? What do you say? Um, in a way, you know, other than saying he's nuts, he's a crackpot, he's whatever, um, it's out there. And as you say, you know, the Finlands and the Swedens and, uh, you know, and a lot of other countries, um, Latvia, I mean, you name it, the list goes on. Um, they're going to say, what are we going to do about this? 
you know, it's a, it, it's a deeply destabilizing speech to everybody. The biggest risk of all is Vladimir Putin can, uh, we often see this, that outsiders don't understand American politics. Uh, even Canadians sometimes, and we're so close to them, we sometimes misjudge America. I meant American politics here, not Canadian politics. And, and Vladimir Putin is listening to this. His team is listening to this. So the first big worry, what does he make of that speech? Is the United States, in fact, backing off uh, its commitment to NATO? Is this a moment of opportunity for him? And it could be a moment of opportunity, Peter, to go much harder in Ukraine in the New York term. But what next? How firm is the U.S. commitment over the long term to NATO? So even though he's not the nominee and he doesn't speak for the United States, it's still so destabilizing. For the Europeans, this is a nightmare because they've never been able to get their act together on shared defense spending. They just haven't. They've always relied on U.S. leadership. Uh, and every time in the past, the United States has frankly stepped up. There's a big question mark over that now after this speech. So um, I, I don't, I would bet you anything, there's not a security expert in NATO right now that's not worried after this speech. I, I'll tell you, Peter, I'm in Washington. There is a already tabletop exercises going on. What would NATO look like if Donald Trump wins the presidency? What are the options? You know, I heard John Bolton um, over the weekend, who's, you know, the former Trump. Um, well, he was, well, was he national security advisor? He yes. was UN ambassador at 1.2. I mean, he's he's been around. Um, uh, he asked about this. He said, look, this is what he tried to do in his first term. And we remember that. Uh, at NATO, basically threatening right there when he was in the new building um, uh, of NATO headquarters in, in Brussels, I guess. But what Bolton said was the difference between then and now is then there were people of some weight and significance around him advising on foreign affairs and foreign policy and what to do in a kind of a situation, a crisis situation. He says there's no evidence that there's anybody like that around him now. I think that's a really, really telling point. Um, you know, Trump burned through Jim Mattis, uh, General Kelly, uh, John Bolton, uh, who has very strong views, but is experienced and uh, knowledgeable in foreign affairs. Nobody of any weight um, is on that team now. Uh, Stephen Miller is still there, who has very, 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 I would honestly say views that are at the far end of the spectrum, but there's no, there's no generals <laughs> who have experience. There's no, there's no experts who've worked in the field for a long time. And this, were Trump to come to power, and as you rightly said at the outset, we don't know. There, There's many a step 
to go yet. Uh, but were he to come to power, he's a team that is coming in determined to make use of those first 18 months. They learned from the last experience. You get the best crack at what you want to get done at shifting institutions in those first 18 months. They're doing that on the judiciary, Peter, and they're doing that um, on international security. Uh, and, you know, Trump walked away from that NATO experience saying it worked. Look, I'm the only one who got those European allies to increase their defense spending and to pay their share. Yeah, which is a bit of a, a bit no of a reason stretch. to think he won't try it again. Yeah, that, that claim was a bit of a stretch because, in fact, yeah. Obama, had, Obama had got had got them to start doing that. But there, there's yeah. no doubt they, they did more when uh, when Trump was there. Um, this isolationist threat in the United States is nothing new. We've, we've seen no. it before. We've seen it for decades. I mean, people tend to forget. You know, they got into the First World War two years after everybody else. They got into the Second World War two years after everybody else uh, because there was real resistance to, to yeah. going and to spending the money. Um what, you know, when you have these talks like you've been having in Washington the last week, what, what do you hear about that, the isolationism and how strong a movement it is? So you're absolutely right, Peter. This is a longstanding tendency in U.S. politics. Um, so people here are familiar with it. But they make a good argument. And where is it now most strongly entrenched? It's among the Make America Great Republicans who are blocking military assistance now to Ukraine. Uh, and Trump controls the Republican Party. He has his fingers now on all the critical levers of the party. So the rump Republicans, you know, the admirers of Ronald Reagan. These are the people, in a sense, that are most worried, most concerned, uh, because they know how much damage can be done if you mismanage uh, a crisis in the early stages. You know, Vladimir Putin walks away <laughs> thinking, oh, this is where the United States is going. That's a serious problem for everybody. Uh, you know, David Brooks is writing column after column. He's a Republican. He was a middle-of-the-road Republican, uh, saying I, uh, my Republican Party is dead. So what you have now in the United States, this has to worry allies. should worry Ottawa deeply. We have a, a two-party system in which one party is strongly isolationist and strongly protectionist both yeah. not a good combination for us no no it's not and you know every when you have a two-party system sooner or later the other party wins yeah yeah i you know i do find it amazing when when people like brooks new york times highly respected um, and, and a, a lot of whether they're former cabinet level people, um, former Republicans of a certain stature who are bailing on the party, you know, yeah. some saying I, I'm no longer a Republican or either I'm still a Republican, but I'm not this Republican. 
Yeah. And you, you know, you hear this day after day after day from, from prominent people and names that we're familiar with and you go, well, who's left? Yeah. Because whoever's well, left, whoever's left is significant enough that the, he's positioned again for that possibility of, of, of winning. Well, you know, two comments there, Peter. One, that base in the Republican Party, that's isolationist, that's populist, that's 35% of the total electorate. Part of why we're all so, let's just remember that. Part of why we're all so worried is the United States, quite frankly, has a crazy presidential electoral system. They don't vote directly for the president. They vote for people that they call electors, the electoral college. So what are people talking about all week? Four swing states, 100,000 voters out of a country of 350 million people roughly are going to decide this election. So you saw the president's team out in Michigan, because that's one of the four, talking to Arab American voters this week. Uh, because I have to get those voters back uh, in order to take Michigan in the in the general election. This hangs by a thread because of the absolutely weird nature of the institutions that the you know that the founders of the American Constitution designed to protect against um, an irresponsible public. Look how that backfired. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, I, I want to go kind of in the reverse order that we've normally gone here for the last few months, which has been Israel, Hamas first, then Ukraine, and and then into uh, what are we missing? But I want to I want to move from this Trump discussion to Ukraine because it's, a, it's almost a natural fit here. Um, it's been another bizarre week. We've talked the last couple of weeks about the the split with the uh, with Zelensky and Zelensky, and now it's finally happened, and it's, it seems to be even bigger than just Zelensky. Um, when you you see him overhauling his whole war cabinet, you go, oh, obviously they're losing the war, yeah, or he wouldn't be doing this, yeah, yeah. I, I, that's absolutely. Clear. You don't do this. You don't shake up your whole senior military command. Not only Zeluzhny, but five other generals out along. And he had fired before that uh, with the head of one of the intelligence operations. So this is really a message from the political leadership. We need a different strategy. We need a new strategy. Well, they have to design that new strategy here in the most unforgiving climate. Let's be, I mean, this is brutal when your principal ally who promised we will stand with you for as long as it takes, can't, you know, because of Congress, can't send you artillery shells. Just imagine trying to fight a war when you're rationing the number of artillery shells that you're firing against the Russians from the trenches. And frankly, brutal. That's all I could say. Uh, so what's the new military strategy? Well, the most controversial piece of it, mobilization, draft. And that's partly why this split happened now. Uh, Zeluzhny wants to expand 
lower the age of young people, young men in Ukraine who are drafted from 27 to 25. Uh, that's already, and, and just think about this, we often talk about demographics and where they matter in the world. But let's just talk about it in Ukraine for just one minute. That age group, men in their 20s, already the smallest proportion of men. The large, it goes out like an inverted triangle. Largest group is men in their, you know, in their 40s. The men in their 20s are dying at a disproportionate rate in this war. So to push it down, you're actually going to deplete the childbearing males, you know, of, of the Ukrainian population for decades on into the future. There's protests against lowering that draft from, and where's the protest? It's quite interesting. It's coming from Western Ukraine, which is the most secure part of the country, farthest from Russia. Uh, but their kids have been mobilized, the 27-year-olds. They've died. Um, these 27-year-olds who were mobilized at the start of the war have not yet had regular furlough to go home and get a break from the war. So what's their break? You fight in the trenches for two weeks. Then you your break is you live in an abandoned house just back of the trenches for two weeks. So that kind of political unity that Ukraine had at the start of the war is cracking under the pressure. And Zeluzhny, who was who was still very popular, that's the reason this exploded. It's over the draft. It's going to be the first thing that the new commander has to figure out. What do you do about that? Well, uh, you're right, because if there's, if there's anything that's going to affect morale uh, more than anything else, it's going to be, you know, my son. Yeah. daughter. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a wonderful article written by a, and I call a classic guy, you know, a scholar, but it was always very, very interesting. And he said, look, if you want to understand Western attitudes towards war, just look at the average number of sons born in rich developed countries. (laughs) The fewer you have, (laughs) the more reluctant you're going to be to let your government go to war because you understand who's going to pay the price. It's your son. And if you only have one, <laughs> which is increasingly where we are in the Western world, I, I, that's an argument that he, he wrote that, I think, 30 years ago. Uh, Edward Lutbach, he's so right. And all you have to do uh, is look to history and walk the yeah. uh, cemeteries of the uh, you know First and Second World War in Europe. Uh, and elsewhere, um, and, and see the ages uh, yeah. of, of who, who's buried there. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned the artillery shells, uh, and I know this is a different issue, but let me back up to that for a second, because what I've found interesting on this this issue is that the Americans, um, the Republicans in Congress, who are against funding or pushing more money to Ukraine, keep talking about the billions of dollars that go to Ukraine. What they don't seem to talk about is the money doesn't go to Ukraine for Ukrainians to make artillery shells. It stays in the States. Like, you know, when you toss around these billion dollar figures, almost half of them stay in the States. They don't go to any, anywhere. They create jobs in the States. And I think there are four or five different States who are world leaders in, in making artillery shells. 
you know, it's 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 just a great point, Peter, because you look at the performance of the U.S. economy, right? It is the leader in the world. <laughs> it is roaring ahead. Manufacturing is up. Uh, you know, unemployment is down. Part of it is, part of it uh, is more manufacturing, frankly, uh, which has always fueled the economy. So this is industrial policy. 50% of what's been allocated for Ukraine has stayed inside the United States to spur uh, military manufacturing. Um that's not how the MAGA Republicans understand it, unfortunately. You know, last point on uh, on Ukraine, Russia. Um, a couple of months ago, uh, and with my limited knowledge of things, and, and I bow to you on this, but a, a couple of months ago, I would have thought, you know, Russia is probably willing to sit at the table if they can just get the territory that they've accumulated already. Yeah. Now I'm going... I don't think so anymore. That that uh, the, the, that uh, that's left the barn already. There's they've got greater hopes for what they can achieve now. Well, listen for any of our listeners that were willing to sit through two hours of dubbed over Vladimir Putin. <laughs> it was an eye opener. It was an eye opener. And you know what? I found the most fascinating part of that interview, Peter, was the half hour off the top where he took us back on a trip through history. Now, his version of history. And I can tell you, if we had a Ukrainian, they would give you exactly the opposite story about the same years. But that doesn't matter. What he really told me, that's where his head still is, really. And he said it over and over again in that interview. Ukraine is not a nation. Ukraine, never, Ukraine was never a nation. Ukraine was always part of Russia. Uh, he hasn't moved an inch, frankly, from where he was, for where he's been for the last 10 years. You know, the best opportunity to end this war was in the first month after it, when there were negotiations going on between Ukrainian delegation and Russian delegation. And it was clear that this was not going to be a three-day effort. And he was kind of, he was shocked. At that point, they, he missed that opportunity. And no, nothing as good has come along since. There was no way he was going to come to the negotiating table when he was losing, which was the fall of 2022. You don't go to the table when you're losing. Uh, that's why Zelensky won't go now. And you don't go to the table when you're winning. <laughs> So when you go to the, so it's really difficult. That's why we have this aphorism. Wars are so much easier to start than to end because both sides have to have given up hope of winning at exactly the same time in order to get negotiations going. Right now, Putin has the bit between his teeth. I agree with you completely. Oh, boy. Um. There seemed like there might have been a window, I don't know, in the fall when it was, yeah. we were all talking stalemate. Yeah. But um, that moment seems yeah. to have passed, although you never know with these things. No, and we don't know what the rest of this year is going to look like. Uh, some people 
are really worried that Russia could break through. Um, if if the deadlock continues in Washington, they are worried uh, that they can break through those defensive lines. And then it becomes an entirely different calculation for Zelensky if that happens. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to move um, to another guy who isn't budging an inch. And that's uh, Netanyahu on the Israel-Hamas situation. And, uh, and talk about the number of new angles developed in the last few days on that one. Be right back after this. back you're listening to the bridge the monday episode you're listening to us on uh sirius xm channel 167 canada talks or on your favorite podcast platform dr janice stein is uh, with us as she is every monday um all right so israel hamas and you've got you've got egyptian tanks heading towards the basically to these towards the israeli border you've got egypt talking about pulling back on some elements of the Egypt-Israel peace treaty. Now, you know, this was not supposed to happen. <laughs> uh, and it's very, um, it's very worrying, to say the least, looking at that. You know, this has to be the biggest strategic blunder that Netanyahu has made after the original set of strategic blunders, frankly, Peter. That peace treaty with Egypt, signed in 1982, has provided fundamental strategic stability for Israel. Um, with Egypt out, uh, and you know, there's no Arab leader that doesn't know this. With Egypt out of any wartime coalition against Israel, there's no combination of Arab militaries that stands a chance of taking Israel on. Um, and so to put that at risk, it, you can hear in my voice, uh-huh. it is literally astonishing. Um, and this is, of course, you know, President al-Sisi, not, as Joe Biden said, Mexico, but <laughs> Egypt, <laughs> just a little mistake there in that interview. Um, but for him to go public with this, this is probably the strongest threat um, that anybody can make um, against Netanyahu in order to get him to stop. Now, in response to those military maneuvers and to conversations that are, of course, going on between the Egyptian military and the Israeli military, these two militaries know each other very well. They have long, this is not the public view, but they have long collaborated together in the Sinai. Um, There has been an insurgency in the Sinai, which the Egyptians claim is Hamas-inspired or Brotherhood-inspired or ISIS-inspired. It's all one to them. And they have relied on the Israeli military, and the two militaries have worked together. So there are conversations going on right now at the professional level. And actually, I think they probably shouldn't be happening this way because those conversations are, if you do this, uh, you need to limit it this way. 
that's not helpful to the president of Egypt who's saying, don't do this under any circumstances. Don't do this as frankly as Joe Biden. It's not quiet anymore. The diplomacy It's open. It's public. Joe Biden said in that in the rest of that interview, Israel went over the top. He sent his deputy national security advisor, John Finer, to Michigan, who outright said, we made some mistakes. We didn't push hard enough. Um, just this morning, uh, the uh, Netanyahu's team issued some sort of ambiguous statement, which is, we will find a safe way to evacuate Rafa. We will make sure that we follow humanitarian law. Now, why did he make that statement? Because the Biden administration came out over the weekend and said, 45 days to tell us, to confirm that you are following the laws of war, otherwise no more military assistance. How Netanyahu does this, whether he does this under the, in the face of this kind of opposition, I, I can't think of any other Israeli prime minister that would go ahead, in all honesty. Is this designed to put pressure on Hamas in these hostage negotiations, which, by the way, are still ongoing? They're deadlocked because the distance between the two parties is quite wide. Is this a pressure tactic? Boy, if it is, is he gambling with the most fundamental piece of Israel's security here? Meanwhile, they're approaching 30,000 deaths, if you believe the Palestinian Authority on the health services in Gaza. Um, And let's not forget, Peter... For our listeners, how many people are in Rafa? Out of a population of 2 million, over 1 million are now in tent cities in Rafa, pushed up against the Egyptian border. That's why the Egyptians are so exercised. Because it does bear saying here, the Egyptians want not one Palestinian on the other side of the border. Uh, Not only because they don't want to be complicit, in yet another displacement of the Palestinians, and that is certainly a part of it, but for security reasons. They regard the Palestinians in Gaza as infiltrated by Hamas. They have a security problem in the Sinai already uh, with militant Sunni Muslims, and they're not prepared to have one person pushed across that border. So we're going to know in the next few days whether Netanyahu goes ahead or not. Is Netanyahu playing the Americans like a fiddle? Well, you know, for that to be true, he would have to be succeeding, Peter, right? Uh, What he is, is showing himself utterly immune to growing pressure that the Biden administration people are putting on him. If, in fact, he continues down this path and he alienates the Biden team, and the Egyptians, I think it would be impossible to consider that any kind of success at all. It's a massive defeat if he does that. Well, at this point, what is success for Netanyahu? Well, you know, if for success for Netanyahu and, and 
this is all politics for him because as we've we've said many times, he's trying to he wants to prolong this war to stay at a court. But what would enable him to claim success for Yaya Sinwar to leave Gaza? Right? That's, that's what it would that's have the to Hamas be. Hamas leader in 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 yeah. Gaza. Yeah, who's in, in tunnels somewhere, originally under Hanunas, but clearly moved in time, now allegedly in Rafa uh, underground, where there are four functioning battalions left. Uh, so, in effect, if, you know, if the leader of Hamas wants this to stop, <laughs> he leaves uh, and this stops. Uh, but because that gives Netanyahu the fig leaf to say, well, I achieved, uh, you know, I achieved our objectives. So that's what it would be. Uh, there was a very interesting U.S. intelligence briefing to Congress this week, which is much more conservative in the number of Hamas fighters that have been killed than the Israeli numbers. Um, and in a capacity of Hamas to reorganize itself, even in Gaza City in the north. Um, there's there's no credible way right now for Netanyahu to claim a military victory uh, against Hamas in Gaza. It's at best a stalemate with horrendous destruction of Gaza and almost unimaginable numbers of civilian deaths. So that's where he's really stuck. He can't go forward and he can't move backward. Okay. Um, what are we missing? Where, uh, what part of the world are well, you going to point us towards now? Boy, when I, I get discouraged reading about the Middle East or Russia, Ukraine or NATO, I flipped uh, to read about this incredible election uh, in Pakistan that took place this week, Peter. You know, ever since India and Pakistan were created uh, in 48.9, interesting, at the same time as Israel and Palestine, and the number of people, we don't talk about this enough, who were exchanged in that one, 13 million, each absorbed in the other's country. In Palestine, Israel, three quarters of a million. And those refugees were not absorbed. And that's why we're talking about Gaza. Um, it's, that's a big part of those stories. Well, the military has shaped politics in Pakistan. Uh, they pick the prime ministers. When they don't like them, they arrest them. They send them to jail. They run the country for three or four years till people get tired. Then they step back in the shadows and they pick the prime minister all over again. And that's that's the one-liner version of Pakistan. Well, Imran Khan, uh, the former prime minister, well-known cricketer, um, had a bat. Uh, a cricket bat as a symbol of his party increasingly challenged the military, was forced out by them and then arrested and last year and imprisoned. But did something unprecedented. His party ran for office with him at the head of it from jail. But what did the military do? allowed another former Pakistani prime minister, Nawaz Sharif, whom they had also arrested and then exiled, to come back and run against him. 
And that was the showdown that we saw this week. Uh, and Imran Khan's party, the PTI, got the largest plurality of seats. That's a way of saying Pakistani voters turned out to vote against the Pakistani military. This is the most stinging defeat that the Pakistani military has ever experienced. What a concept. What a concept. Somebody running from jail and winning. That could never never happen here. No. (laughs) And the other piece of this, which was a kind of window. So in in a deep way, that's a good news story. Um, You know, these are citizens. um, and, And by the way, they took away his bat. As a simple, as a symbol of his party, he couldn't use it, and the literacy levels in Pakistan are such that those symbols recognize those symbols really matters to people. They still went to the polls and they congregated and they helped each other to figure out uh, which party was Imran Khan's. And then here's a window into the future: the night. Uh, uh, when the results started to trickle in very slowly. And that always happens when somebody's manipulating results. Uh, Imran Khan's team issued an AI version of him. (laughs) He sent the notes for the speech (laughs) out. They did what you could call deep fake audio. Uh, but it wasn't a deep fake because he authorized it, and there was a great celebratory audio and video that was broadcast. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I see where we're going. He must sometimes think, oh, cricket was so much easier than it is. But he was well, a great cricketer. Great, great, great cricketer. And, and, and why was it easier? Because there were rules. <laughs> Yeah, play cricket by the rules like you play any other sport by the rules. And what we're seeing everywhere, the rules are gone. Uh, And that's what's creating this incredible turmoil and uncertainty that we're seeing everywhere in the world. I'm glad you reminded us of the the kind of 47, 48, 49 period when 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 maps were being redrawn and and remind us by whom. Oh, by these these maps were redrawn by the British, right? right? That's where the imperial story, uh, they redrew both those maps um, with some knowledge of local populations, but not huge. Uh, and you, there are multiple movies of those days when Lord Mountbatten. Sure. <laughs> right? Comes and. The British flag is brought down and the Indian flag and the Pakistani flag are raised for the first time. And then these refugees that grow out of British imperialism, frankly, because Pakistan and India were one country, India, before all this started. Yeah, it's... um it's important for us to remember the history on, on both these areas um, because yeah. these troubles didn't start nope. yesterday or even, you know, a couple of years ago or 10 years ago, they started kind of at the beginning of the, at the last century. Yeah. And then they came, they came out of world war one, Peter, right? right? 
Yeah, right. when the Ottoman Empire collapsed and Britain was given the mandates um, in in Palestine, um, and the whole story, in a sense, starts there. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll save that for another day, um, because uh, these days seem to be continuing without any uh, question, and uh, also without any question is your help in trying to understand them. So. Good conversation. Yet another one. Enjoy your time in uh, in Washington. We'll uh, we'll talk to you again in a week, Janice. See you next Sunday. See you next Monday, folks. Right. Well, there you have it, Doctor Janice Stein. Had quite a conversation this week. You got to admit, um, there's so much happening on the world stage, uh, and I know that you know for most of us, the world stage is not the stage we focus on. It's more of a domestic stage with domestic concerns, and there are lots of them. But uh, the fact that we're, we spend one day a week talking about the foreign stage, I think, is important, especially these days with the kind of things that are happening, whether it's Ukraine, Russia, whether it's Israel, Hamas, whether it's Pakistan, and whether it's the ramblings and mumblings of uh, contenders for the U.S. presidency. Those will all have an impact on on us as well. So thank you uh, again to Dr. Janice Stein from the Monk School at the University of Toronto. A couple of minutes left to uh, remind you of the question of the week. It's about airline and the airline industry. The question is if you could do one thing that would change the airline industry, improve the airline industry, what would that change be? And write to the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Get it in by four Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Name, location, and keep it short. And if you have just general comments about any number of issues, could have been the ones today or the ones we'll talk about tomorrow, we're talking about Black History Month. We have Marcy Ian with us, who any of you who've watched television in Canada over the last 20, 25 years know who Marcy Ian is. Uh, she was a great commentator and host on CTV. Um, she's now in the federal cabinet. But we're not talking to her about politics. We're talking to her about Black History Month. And uh, it's a good conversation. That's tomorrow, right here on the bridge. Um, I'm going to tell you a quick airline story, just to get you in the airline mood. Here it is. Uh, as some of you know, I used to work for an airline. That's before I started working for the CBC. So we're talking the late 1960s. I worked for a little airline called Transair for about three years. Thoroughly enjoyed every day I was there. Among the different things that I used to do, everything from, you know, loading bags to loading freight to checking in passengers to making out the load and balance sheet for the pilots. And out of Churchill, we used to fly, for the most part, we flew DC-3s, DC-4s, and eventually, just before I left, they got a 737, a jet. So one of the things you'd have to do when you were uh, involved in the uh, uh, front desk operation was make out a load and balance sheet for each flight that was taking off. And that basically tell the pilots how much the plane weighed with all the bags and freight on it and the people. And where the center of balance was, and that would depend on where you loaded things, right? And which compartment you loaded things in the belly of the airplane. 
so I used to be pretty good at that. I enjoyed doing that and uh, understood the responsibilities of it. And you were always looking to make sure you were obviously underweight restrictions and that you had a good balance situation for the pilots. Now, one of the things you had to do was include a calculation on the weight of passengers. And the way you did that was there was a generally accepted weight. And if I recall correctly, it was 50 years ago, if I recall correctly, male passengers, you put down 165 pounds, that that was the average for male passengers. For female passengers, I'm trying to remember, I think it was 110. Now, I could be wrong. I'm sure about the 165, not so sure about the 110. But that's how you figured out weight of passengers. Now, why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that because a Finnish airline, Finnair, has announced it's going to start weighing passengers to get a more accurate reflection. They're actually going to have a weigh scale at the check-in counter, and you have to stand there and get weighed when you check in. Now, I'm not sure how well that's going to go over with a lot of people. Can you imagine standing in the in the line? There's a, there's a story in the Daily Mail about it and includes a picture of some guy at, a, at the uh, weigh-in counter. And you don't just weigh yourself. You weigh yourself plus all your carry-on baggage. So you've got to carry all that to the little weigh scale at the counter. Now, I don't know. I would be surprised if one of you writing in with your one thing you do to change the way the airlines operate answer would be, I think they should start weighing individual passengers and all their carry-on luggage before they let them on the plane. But you never know. Perhaps one of you will write that. Get your cards and letters in. I'm looking forward to reading them this week. Remember, it's the question of the week. Plus, if there's something you want to say about any particular issue, here's your opportunity. And we'll afford time within the Thursday program, along with the random ranter, for some of those answers too, some of those comments as well. That's it for this day. It's Monday. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Great to have you with us tomorrow. Don't forget that feature interview with Marcy Ian about Black History Month. I think you'll enjoy that as well. So thanks for listening today. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours.